You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. I'm Adam Risman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. This episode is a dispatch from the Inside Intercom World Tour, a recently launched event series that's all about what it takes to make great product. Among a handful of talks at our recent Paris stop, Intercom Managing Editor John Collins hosted a panel of guests from our favorite local startups, which we'll feature in this episode. Each guest shares lessons learned from building their unique business, including the challenges of product education, how to succeed from far outside Silicon Valley, and of course, the shared traits of successful product. Panelists include Jean-Francois Hianata, co-founder and CEO at Augment, that's an augmented reality platform on iOS and Android to help visualize a product before buying it. I started uh, Augmented Reality in 2011, and basically nearly all the people I demoed to since then, it was the first time they saw Augmented Reality. So they always find it cool, but then you need to show them value and not just the cool factor. Julien Limon, co-founder and CTO at Algolia, a provider of a hosted search API that promises instant and relevant results from the minute you start typing. So we need to be international. If we want to have a good support for users, it's a very uh, tough challenge with one location. And Isabel George, co-founder of WeRoom, a European marketplace for flat shares and room rentals. My first learning was you need to have co-founder with you to, to create and run your company. If you like what you hear, check out intercom.io slash inside intercom for our full list of upcoming tour dates and tickets. And with that, let's get into the panel. For all of you, actually, it's the first time that you've done a startup with your current companies. Uh, although, Isabel, I know you're the founding partner at the consultancy before WeRoom. But if you can think back to that maybe stage before you became a founder, what's maybe the most important or surprising thing you'd learned? I mean, if you could go back in time and tell yourself, you know, before you started, what advice would you give yourself? I would say that the first advice would be to, and I know it's not an event about resizing intercom, <laughs> but uh, about asking the people that are using the product what it is for, what are they doing with it, or what they would want to do with it. Because I like, developed it two years before, before asking someone what they were doing with the product. <laughs> Just because I like developing product, obviously. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that would have been a good start. Okay. Uh, Julian? So for me, I think, um, yeah, definitely uh, understanding of how people use the product and what they want to achieve with it, but mainly think about the scaling of the product. When you start to have some growth, when you start to have some traction, it's not the moment to scale the product. It needs to be done before to, to be able to scale uh, when you have a lot of people that sign up and, and want to test the product. Yeah. Isabel? So uh, my first company was a consulting company. So it's very different uh, as an experience. Uh, it's another... I, I was alone to start this company, and uh, I found it very difficult to start uh, with no co-founder, in fact. And for me, even the products, the, the, the clients, the customer, the, the team, uh, it was difficult to, to run a company uh, without co-founder. So uh, I, my first learning was you need to have co-founder to <laughs> and a great co-founder with you to, to create and run your company. Uh, if not, you are alone to make your decision and uh, you have nobody to discuss problem or to, to share success. So uh, when I found my second company, uh, it was with uh, Thomas Villeneuve, our CEO, and it was my best decision ever <laughs> to, to fund a startup. So very diff- different. 
And with Wii Room, you've sort of made things twice as hard anyway, because it's a marketplace, presumably. It's a marketplace. So you have so, consumers and you have business. You've... So, yes, it's very difficult for a marketplace because uh, when you start, it's a C2C uh, business. So when you start, you have no rooms and no uh, people, no, fl no flat terror. So it's empty. So you have to create, it's critical that you create a virtual circle to have rooms and uh, to have demand. So, but to have demand, you need room rooms, and to have rooms, you need demand. So it's... <laughs> so how did you crack that one? So, so we, in fact, we, we were lucky. Very, very often you need to be lucky in life. And then we found a corporate to, to invest in WeRoom, and they give us uh, the first rooms, the sellers, the first rooms. And uh, for France, it was like that. And for UK, as we know that we have to find uh, at least a critical mass uh, of rooms, uh, we make a partnership with a letting agency also to have at least 1,000 rooms to start. The, SaaS, the whole SaaS model, obviously, Intercom is an example of that, has revolutionized many things in the software industry. But can you really just set up shop and let your customers service themselves? I mean, Jean-Francois, what's your experience been like with that? So we tried that for uh, three years. So to let people help themselves, I was a big proponent of just uh, putting that out and letting them um, you know, buy it and just not bothering us while we were working on real stuff. But it didn't work out because uh, after a while we had uh, new customers all the time, but also a big and huge churn because people didn't know exactly how to do that and how to work or implement augmented reality. The fact is augmented reality is so new that they didn't even know what they were buying. So they bought, yeah, an augmented reality something, but what for? Yeah. So after a while, we just cut up the subscription business. So we forbid everyone to buy directly by themselves, and we put a sales form, which I hated. But by doing that, we increased our revenue like 10 times in one month, just because we were able to talk to the customer and to know what they wanted and to just tell to the one that didn't know about it what it is and how they can implement it to onboard them. And from there, it was a lot easier because we knew what was our strength, what were our weaknesses, and how we could improve. And uh, yeah, we should have done that like two years before. And, uh, but now I think at some point in the future, we'll be able to reinstall this self-subscription model because we'll, we'll know what type of customer can buy by themselves and we'll be able to direct them on this way. But yeah, not doing that too early would be a... And presumably selling a, an API, you can't do that self-serve either, can Yeah, you? We, we started remotely by doing self-serve, <laughs> but uh, we were discussing with all existing, all people that, that enter an email or try the product, just to try to get as many information as possible, try to get why they are interested by the product, what are the pain points, how can we improve it, solve, uh, solve the problems. And um, I think it's all, it's really depend on the, the community you target. Um, developers really like self-serve, so having a self-serve and contacting all of them individually, I think we managed to contact probably 80% of the people. You always have some people that you, you are not able to contact, but it gives us a lot of insight, a lot of information on, on the useful part of the product and on the part that we need to, to improve. And Isabel, presumably, if 
you're doing flat sharing or, or renting a room correctly, you're not doing it very often. You only do it maybe once every six months, once a year. So you have this situation where you onboard customers and then you don't see them again. How do you, how do you deal with that? In fact, when uh, flat share, uh, when you rent a room uh, for flat sharing, it lasts uh, around six months, nine months. So uh, you only in con- so they come in the room only once or twice per year. Uh, they don't need to come. Uh, uh, if not, so we create uh, on Facebook a big community. We are on more than 270,000 uh, fans on Facebook, and people are very engaged. We are very active on Facebook. We use it for useful content, for funny content, for um, a lot of uh, sort of, of, of content, and then uh, we stay in touch with our community uh, through uh, Facebook. We also try to have a, a nice blog, <laughs> very nice blog. So I hear really uh, carefully what you said. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we will progress on our, our blog in the next weeks. One of the things I imagine is a problem with, with marketplaces, though, is you potentially have fraud and, and, and scams. I mean, you have consumers dealing with consumers Yes, uh, it's difficult to, to create a, a marketplace because, as we said, you need to have demand and supply and to have demand and supply who match, but you also have a lot of scammers uh, on marketplace when you are open because you want to be scalable, so you are an open marketplace, and the scammers they always find you, and uh, you have to be sure of that. They come from a lot of different countries, uh, and so uh, our, it's a great job since the day one uh, to fight against them. So you have to be very quick, uh, very fast, faster than them. And uh, so we, we are very well organized uh, with uh, automatic tools and manual tools, because we use several tools to, to manage it. Uh, the, the biggest part is on supply. And uh, for us, it's uh, one of our main uh, issues that we manage to do it now because trust uh, and security is one of the main points on the marketplace. So you could lose it very quickly. Mm. Yeah. So we, we, knew, we, we knew them very well now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and Julian, in your business is a, a challenge. I mean, you're in search technology. There's a small little US company called Google that plays in search. When there's a giant in your, in your sector, though, how do you manage that? Actually, Google has educated the market for us. So people are used to have a very good search every single day when they use Google. And the problem is that when they use a website or an application, they don't have the same experience. So actually, Google helps us to, to just realize, make people realize that their search on their website or application is not good enough. It's not at the level of Google. Um, then as a, as a company, it's not really a competitor for us. They, they are on the on the website market, they sell advertisement. Uh, they, they are not selling a tool for developers as, as a search engine. So we are not directly in competition, but they directly help us. Mm-hmm. They educate people. You're not worried that they might decide someday to go into your space? <laughs> competition is always good. It's a challenge for, for you. It makes you realize that maybe the advance you add is not so, so far. And it's, uh, competition is always good. And on the other hand, Jean-Francois, you had like that sort of classic first-mover advantage. I mean, augmented reality was, was very new. But does that have a challenge then in that people are maybe seeing augmented reality for the first time when you, your sales guys come to their, their office or when I they see it online? We, we miss our Google to educate the market. Because uh, when I started, I started uh, augmented reality in 2011. And basically, nearly all the people I demoed to since then 
it was the first time this augmented reality. So they always find it cool, but then you need to show them value and not just the cool factor. And when you said that you were talking to all your users that are subscribing, when I was still alone in Augment, we had like 30,000 active users monthly. So, but I had also another job and, and it was impossible to contact. So, and as soon as we started creating the team, we were uh, faced with the scaling challenges. So we never went ahead to, uh, to contact the person. And the fact is, everyone wants to know about augmented reality once they read about it and, or they saw about it. So what we did basically was educating people and for free. Because we were eager to talk to anyone and they were asking, oh, wow, your product's so nice. Let me know about augmented reality. And we didn't know at the time that there were like thousands of people in company paid to ask people what their product is without any yeah, envy to buy. So, yeah. But now the market is mature and some of the people we see today, they're like, oh, wow, okay, that really solved the problem. Why didn't come to us like three years before? And we said, yeah, we did, but you said that it was cool, but useless. Yeah. <laughs> so being the first mover is good in a certain point, but the fact is nobody's looking on Google about an augmented reality solution. Nobody needs to be educated what search is, but they do necessarily need to be educated for augmented reality. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I guess on search you have a lot of people looking for, okay, I need a search engine for my website. Now it starts, but for four years there was no one looking for an augmented reality solution for their company. Yeah. Most of the time we improve something that, that exists. Yeah. So it's... A question I heard I debated all over Europe is this whole thing of whether you need to go to San Francisco or Silicon Valley to succeed. Um, Julian, I see you, you spend a lot of time in, in, in the Bay Area, so what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, so we are a US company with a big office in France, uh, mm. let's say, say it that way. Um, I think it's really dependent on who you are targeting. Uh, we, we ask ourselves the question about which location we need to select probably around 100 times with 100 different answers at the beginning, uh, without uh, understanding all the context. But at the end, what is important is the industry. If we were targeting media industry, I think we would be in New York, uh, because the big um, concentration of users is, is there. We are targeting APIs, uh, startups, and the ecosystem is, in, uh, is around San Francisco, so we need to be there. Uh, and then for, for a company like us that have an international market, we cannot be only in France. It does not make any sense. We could not be profitable. So we need to be international. So having only one location is not really an, an option. Uh, if we want to have a good support for users, it's a very uh, tough challenge with one location. Uh, so having one office in Paris plus the headquarters in San Francisco for us was the solution. But I think it's really dependent of, of the market. Then when we, we went to the US, the big difference for us was the, the maturity of the market. Uh, for SaaS product, the US is definitely probably one or two steps um, in advance in terms of uh, understanding the value um, and, and making a decision quickly to move forward. Isabel, I presume you're building a European marketplace, so US is, is not even on the agenda yet. Yes, it could be for demand. <laughs> but in fact, uh, we, we are a very local business for supply because we speak about 
even countries, we speak about cities, and for big cities, we speak about arrondissements for Paris or borough in London. So if you want to, to live north of Paris, you don't want to live south of Paris. So for the supply, we are a very, very local uh, market. And so we decided to launch first in Europe, in big cities inside Europe, because we also, are also a C2C companies, you have regulation. Uh, all over the world, and regulation in in US is not, um, is not the same that regulation in Europe. Hopefully, we have Europe, so regulation is more or less the same inside Europe. You have common uh, reg regulation, so it's why we decided uh, to launch uh, Europe first, but to launch cities inside Europe for for supply and for demand. Uh, most of our demand comes from Europe, but we have 20% of our demand comes from elsewhere. Uh, Chinese people, a lot of Chinese people want to study in Europe, but also American, Canadian, and so uh, Indian. We also have um, people all over the world. Jean-Francois, are you, are you getting the plane to San Francisco anytime soon? Or? Next week. Next week? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, we have, uh, since, since we started, I mean, everything was already in English, and we communicated first in US conferences. So, I mean, most of the first money we spent was to fly to San Francisco and to go to uh, or South by Southwest to a New York conference in San Francisco because that's where people were starting to talk about augmented reality. And, uh, but funnily enough, then they are slower to buy than in Europe because in the US we deal with big enterprise and first they, in the US they reorganize every three months. So it's really hard to navigate those companies. And then they have a big culture of pilot where they want to do a pilot for three months, six months. Well, in Europe, they just tend to say, okay, let's buy, and we'll okay. see later on if it works or not. Three months for pilot, I was going, wow, that's really quick. <laughs> yeah, it's too, yeah, but then you need two years to get yeah. to the pilot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, something I also hear debated a lot in France, and I'll probably open a can of worms now by, by saying this, but it's whether the government here does enough to help entrepreneurs. Where do you sit on that issue? Short answers now. Julian, I know you definitely have a view on, on the French government's support. Definitely, I think the, the help from the government is for big companies. I have seen, I have worked in big companies, I know how very efficient they are to get money from the government, but it's very, uh, it's very unfocusing. You lose your focus as a small company when you fill papers to get some money from the government. It's probably the worst money you can get. It's better to raise some money and have people that challenge your idea and make you move forward on your project, rather than having to fill um, some paper to prove you are uh, innovating with a special definition from the government. Actually, since the start, we had a very, very hard time fitting an innovative company profile. So we always try to say, okay, we are innovative, but it's hard to say. Even if we invent something that doesn't exist, it's hard to fill out exactly the, the right thing to, to get, just to get like the young innovative uh, enterprise status. Yeah, and that's uh, like the innovation that you can't sell. I mean, it's always the same in France. The, there are companies chasing government money, and then they end up being bought by U.S. companies because they haven't even invested in, at all in marketing or sales. Because if you do that, you're not innovative anymore because you spend too much in sales and marketing and not enough in innovation. Yeah, yeah. It's not just in France. That's, oh, okay. That's <laughs> in Ireland, the UK, we see that we see that all over the place. I'm going to finish up with a question that I'm asking all our panelists as we, as we travel around because I think a lot of our talks here are, are the events are sort of focused on how to build a great product or you know a company that can can build a great product. So, what in your opinion is the difference maybe between a, a good product and a great product, Isabel? For me, it's when people come back uh, because you exceed their expectations. 
Pretty simple definition. <laughs> For me, it's a whole experience with the product. All the small details count. Um, we are not just selling an API for us. We sell a complete service with support, with onboarding, with a dashboard. So it's all the experience of the user, and everything counts. Yeah. For me, a good product is when you say, uh, wow, cool, when you start using it. And a great product is when you bring everyone that is around you or in the building to show them the product that you just discovered. Thank you very much, guys. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.